What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. That is the zipper of my suitcase. And it is one of the most emotionally loaded sounds of my life. As a touring musician, that noise means it's van call. Your morning deadline to meet all your bandmates in the hotel parking lot. And you are frantically packing, running mental checklists, toothbrush, hoop earrings, water bottle, sleep mask thing. And you are zipping your suitcase, hoping that the seams hold as you lean on it, smashing your entire life like a panini, trying to fit all the possessions you'll need for the next span of weeks or months into a 22-inch wheelie carry-on and a duffel bag. And yet, living out of only a couple bags, I almost always pack something that never gets used. A dress that doesn't make it on stage. A book I don't end up cracking. Which begs the question, if I don't really need all this stuff in this carry-on, then what the heck is all this stuff at home for? The drill that I can't find the power cord for. The Velcro curlers. The box full of power cords, none of them fitting the drill. Living light for a while can make an apartment feel like a walk-in junk drawer of hard-to-part-with bits and pieces. I'm Dessa. This is Deeply Human. Presuming you're not a hardcore ascetic tuning in on a DIY crystal radio, you probably have some stuff you don't really need. Maybe even more than you want. So why are humans so driven to acquire, collect, and even hoard? Why do you own so much? And when does your stuff start to own you? The Royal Charter was a ship which sank off the coast of uh, Wales, actually, on its route to Liverpool from the goldfields of Australia. It sank in 1859, I think it lost about 600 lives. What made this tragic, according to reports? Many of the people who drowned, they were the miners who were carrying the gold on them in money belts. They drowned because they wouldn't let go of all the gold that they were carrying. And that gold, by the way, is washing up on the shores of North Wales as we speak. Prospectors are going out to try and retrieve it. That is Bruce Hood, professor of developmental psychology at the University of Bristol in England. Bruce wrote a book called Possessed, which explores why humans strive to own so much stuff. But before we can examine the motives buried in our golemy little hearts, we've got to get some terms straight. Possession versus ownership. Bruce, hit it. Possession is the physical control of an item, usually a material thing, whereas ownership is a convention of social contract whereby people are recognized 
to have control over something in perpetuity, even when they're not there. Mm. So it's like, this is my spoon when it's in my fist. Possession. Yep. This is my spoon when it's in the drawer and I'm asleep. Ownership. That's it. As a general rule, the rest of the animal world doesn't own items in the same way we do. Possible exceptions might be the California sea otter, known to store one stone in a special little pouch, a handy tool for whenever they've got to crack open a mollusk shell. And some birds, like rooks or jays, are known to play with bottle caps, marbles, and other shiny treasures and bury their personal cash for safekeeping. But usually, even if animals possess an object, a stick used for termite hunting, say, they just discard it when they're done with it. When humans are young, they don't really get the idea of ownership either. They think if you can't control something, you can't own it. So they <laughs> They're th- pirates. <laughs> yeah, so if they think you're a sleeper in a coma or you're tied up, you can't own something because they have used this issue of control as a basis for establishing possession and for the basis of later ownership. We enter the world with no stuff. Only a little plastic hospital bracelet announcing the name somebody just bestowed upon us. Our first bit of intellectual property, I suppose. But soon, somebody sets us up with a blankie, a pacifier, a stuffed bunny. You learn the word mine, and you wear it out. And the great acquisition has begun. Before long, we're outgrowing shoes, sleeping on our very own big kid bed, maybe cruising around in a sweet ride sans training wheels. Even in modern homes of pretty modest means, there's usually a bunch of stuff. Then you're full grown, and it's time to move out, find a gig, maybe partner up with somebody, and get a place of your own. We had two front seats in the Volkswagen, and then we put all of our worldly goods in the back. It was the most exciting time in my life, I would say. That's Candy Hyatt, recounting her experience of this particular life stage, the go out and make a home for thyself part. She'd grown up in New York, but headed out west with her guy Jack to start a life together. And they set off with only a carload of essentials, but she brought a handful of precious items with her, too. I played violin all the way through high school and then just for enjoyment. And I had an antique box with diaries in it. They landed in Colorado, bought some land on Sugarloaf Mountain, and Jack started to build a house using all sorts of salvaged materials. We had the bumper car pavilion floor from Elitch's, which was an amusement park in Denver. And we had radiators from Shannon's, which was a biker bar in Boulder. They were those old metal. They ended up with a -a one-of-a-kind home, full of rad stuff and unusual features, stories built right into the walls. They had a little girl and then a boy. Went into family mode, the years unspooling as years do. But then everything went off script. In 1989, we went on a vacation. We were watching the news, and we saw, I think it was on CNN, they said, a fire is raging out of control in Boulder, Colorado. I said, wow, that looks like our road, and I'm known to catastrophize. So Jack said, no, that's not our road. That's further west than us. Everything's fine. Don't worry. But not too much later, the phone rang. One of my best friends who lived in town in Boulder called me and said, is Jack there? Which is never a good question. You know you're going to hear some bad news and maybe pass out, so they they want somebody there with you. I said yes, and she said, there's a fire in your neighborhood. Everything is not fine. 
and I had a picture in my mind of a corner of the house being gone or maybe the curtains having caught on fire. But then she said, it's gone. It's all gone. Oh, gosh. The house exploded before the flames even got there because it was so hot. Wow, I have a few tears in my eyes. Um, When we came back, we stood at the foundation and looked down into the hole that was left. The house Jack built by hand, gone. The antique violin, all her diaries, gone. And everything had fallen down into the foundation, and you could still see the words on the pages, even though everything was all burned. And some of that was my journals. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. It was quite a loss. Candy and Jack had less than when they started. I would also say that the fire was kind of the beginning of our splitting up, too. Their marriage didn't survive the fire. Candy says that was partly because Jack's connection to the place was incinerated along with all their stuff. The emotional link was broken when the material anchors gave way, and he wanted to leave to go someplace new. Candy wanted to stay, to start again where they were. In normal life, you know, without the extremes of, like, fires and floods, I think it can be kind of tempting to imagine there's the world of stuff and then there's the world of our personal relationships. Right. But it sounds like those two worlds aren't completely as strictly separate. No, they're not. Particularly when some of that stuff is a house that you've put your heart and soul into and your stuff is part of the picture that you have. And the picture has your relationships in it and it has your stuff in it. But when all of that stuff is gone and the picture has changed that dramatically, it changes your personal relationship as well, I think. Years and years ago, I found a half-used yellow legal pad at my mom's house. On the top page, a neat straight line had been drawn down the middle And there was a short list of stuff on either side. Elemental stuff, like car or house. I don't remember all the items exactly, because they're obscured by the big wave of feelings that hit me when I realized what I was looking at. I was looking at my parents' divorce. I'd known they hadn't hired a lawyer, too expensive. But I'd never considered the mechanics of a DIY version of marital dissolution. Like two people sitting at a table with a pen and a pad, dividing all their worldly possessions on either side of a sketched line. It was such a sad and humble piece of paper, but also deeply moving to me, because it was their alternative to court dates and legal battles that would have divided the assorted possessions of 20 years together. For a while, that sheet of paper itself was really precious to me. We keep things for all sorts of reasons. One of the most powerful emotional reasons is sentimental value, where people will really value something which is of no worth to anyone else, but objects form part of our identities. That's Bruce again, our developmental psychologist, who, for what it's worth, has a soft spot for horror movie posters and golden-era Hollywood stuff. And, sidebar, if his voice rings familiar to you die-hard, deeply human fans out there, it's because he made an appearance on the Spooked episode in season one. Or... Maybe you just went to high school with him or something. He says that our ability to own things and to catch feelings for them is historically linked to the way we grow our food. So, you know, when we transition from hunter-gatherers into sort of settling down and farming and raising cattle and things like that, and then going off to fight wars, we had to have a system of rules, which meant that when we came back from the wars, we had our property. Is it the case that 
throughout history, we've had really different understandings of what kinds of things are eligible for ownership. Yeah, so that's absolutely true. So that was the origin of a lot of the misunderstandings with the invasion of North America, because the indigenous peoples didn't have a concept of anyone owning the land. That seemed ridiculous. And that's why they sold something uh, like Manhattan for $42 or whatever it was, because they didn't have a kind of understanding how that could ever be a binding agreement. And now, in that same Manhattan, we've expanded our concept of ownership to encompass almost mythical realms. You can own other people's debt. Or soybeans that haven't been planted yet. You can shop for shoes 24 hours a day without putting on any to leave your own house. You can order custom bobbleheads or a bag of 1,500 live ladybugs delivered to your door for under 20 bucks. Our world is a veritable bonanza of sale, stuff, and ownership. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I worked with one lady, very complex lady, for about 10, 10 years after she had the miscarriage. She was acquiring and hoarding baby clothes and baby toys in, in response to that loss. That is Joe Cook. She's the director of Hoarding Disorders UK, and she works with people whose stuff threatens to overwhelm the rest of their lives. She got into the business of organizing and decluttering because of her own experience with her dad. After my father died, it took me four months to clear the family home out. He was Polish. He grew up during the war. He remembers his parents sacrificing their food to give to him. He hated any kind of food waste, but he also hated throwing anything away. There are people that have emotional attachments to things where they find it difficult to let go of an empty crisp packet, a newspaper from 30 years ago. Acquiring and keeping stuff can be a self-soothing maneuver, a response to loss or uncertainty or scarcity. The emotional insulation, as I call it. I think we can all relate to how we responded to the pandemic. I mean, who didn't go out and, and buy more petrol? Who didn't go out and buy more loo rolls or extra tins of soup in terms of responding to anxious times? But by the time a prospective client calls Joe, their lives have usually reached a crisis point. People might not be able to sleep in their bed, cook on their oven, or be able to use a bath. Or it might well be that the hoarding has attracted vermin. It can be hard to ask for help because hoarding has been so stigmatized in pop culture. But that's changing. The World Health Organization now treats hoarding behaviors as part of a medical condition. 
But letting go of stuff can be hard for a lot of us. The declutterer Marie Kondo is like an international superstar. Joe notes that a history of scarcity might make someone afraid to toss out even extraneous items. And grief might make throwing away a loved one's bathrobe feel like a denigration of their memory. People are now recognizing that actually hoarding isn't about people that are lazy and dirty. It's getting people to recognize and to understand and look at, we call it the meaning in the mess. The meaning in the mess. Well, let's turn back to Candy, who we left standing over a particularly meaningful mess, looking into the ashes of her home with Jack. Their split was hard and messy at first, but over time, tempers cooled. And Candy moved into a house outside of Boulder, Colorado, near enough to Jack's new place that on the days the kids spent with her, they could see him flashing a mirror from his porch to say hello. And after a walk one day, Candy and a friend stood talking in her new home when something caught their eye. We were standing by a window and we looked up and she said, oh my God, is that smoke? My landline was ringing, and it was a reverse 911 call saying, you need to evacuate. And I said, I think we need to go over to Jack's and get stuff out of his house. Another fire was headed their way, and both Candy and Jack's new houses were in its path. Jack, at that time, was headed out of town on vacation with his new wife, but Candy caught him on the phone. Do you want me to go over and get anything? Jack just kind of rolled his eyes and said, there she goes again, catastrophizing. It was, um, it was a pattern in our relationship. <laughs> Everything is not fine. And then about 20 minutes later, he called back and he said, well, maybe there's a few things you could get. Candy and her friend raced over. And it was already so hot that they were afraid the paint on the car would melt. Jack's house sitters had already fled. They'd left the door open. So Candy and her friend just ran in, started putting stuff in boxes. Two computers, Jack's briefcase, which was essentially his office, the art hanging in the kids' rooms. By the time we left, I could see flames. Within probably three hours, um, someone called me and said that they had heard the propane tank at his house explode. It burned to the ground. He lost everything. Oh, my God. Not everyone would drive into the smoking heart of a wildfire, risking life and limb to save a few boxes of stuff for her ex-husband. Even after being dismissed as overreactive, after the hard divorce. But Candy understood what was really at stake, and she knew exactly what losing a home and all the things inside it could do to somebody's whole life. I think it was us against the fire. In my mind, it was like, God damn it, this is not going to happen a second time. We are not going to lose everything a second time. Bruce Hood argues that our strong compulsion to own and keep things is a basic impulse, potentially driven by evolutionary forces. Collecting property might be a way of signaling our status, that our stuff was essentially proof of our fitness. Chest pass to Bruce. I think that humans are inclined to competition because of, well, we were competing to reproduce. And the more that you have, the more that you're signaling your competence or your ability to provide for future generations. So there's a kind of real imperative to try and accumulate as much as you can control. According to this theory, our possessions were one way to signal status, dominance, power. But of course, our attachment to stuff isn't driven only by ancient forces. It's also driven by ads on Instagram or the fancy window displays on Fifth Avenue. 
The TV commercials where the hottest A-list actor looks into the middle distance with an expression of sensuous boredom to help sell cologne. Like, it's marketing, man. Think about something like a celebrity endorsement, all right? That was something which was invented by John Watson, who's a psychologist. Academic footnote here, John Watson, American, active during the first half of the 20th century, known for advertising campaigns that appealed to consumers' deep psychological needs. He realized that if you pair certain desirable things together, people make the association that owning one will achieve the other. And so he just figured, let's get all these celebrities, these heroes that people worship, to smoke certain brands of cigarettes or use certain toothpaste, and then that's why people would buy it in an attempt to emulate their heroes. Hi, I'm Dessa, host of the self-referential hit program, Deeply Human. And fans often ask, Dessa, with your dulcet voice and poignant insights on human behavior, what sort of nonstick cookware could you recommend? Is there anything that's easy to clean and oven safe? Well, let me tell you, when I'm not cooking up another episode of Deeply Human, you can find me at the stove using Dessa's Deep Dishes brand cookery items. I'm too busy cleaning up at the podcast awards to worry about cleaning up pots and pans. Dessa, enough already. James, fall back. When you've got your own brand of cookery items, holler. Big ad agencies launch huge campaigns trying to link consumer goods with status and prestige. And then pushing in exactly the opposite direction is a blogger named Mr. Money Mustache, a dude who's been called the frugal guru by The New Yorker. What I realized at one point is that I hadn't just started a blog, I'd started sort of a fake, ironic cult. Pete Aidney, a.k.a. Mr. Money Mustache, is like a cross between a cartoon gold prospector and a counterculture warrior fighting conspicuous consumption. He got internet famous by advocating a low-spend lifestyle and a really aggressive savings strategy. But before Pete had any money, or a mustache... He was a boy in the small town of Caledonia in Canada. It's a working-class community with a simple lifestyle. You don't really have much to compare yourself against, and I think that's a really healthy thing because human nature is to compare ourselves with the richest people and then wonder why we can't have that. My dad was a frugal guy, and he liked to keep things reasonable. So we were always like the last family to get the cool stuff, the last one to get a microwave oven, last one to get a nicer TV or VCR, all these 1980s things that other people had. But what I realized later, they were fairly well off, like, you know, fairly middle income, probably higher than some of my friends, but we had a lot less stuff. And Pete made note, it was important not to spend too much of what you earned. When he first got a tech job in the U.S., he thought he was making a killing, but... My co-workers are like, oh yeah, it's just enough, you know, things are so expensive these days. But he'd built his life to cost less. He biked the commute, for example, instead of leasing sleek new wheels. The reason I could do that is because I chose to buy a house that was, you know, within 10 miles of work or less. And they were driving their BMWs in from a super distant suburb because, like, we looked the same and we had the same salary. But I was just able to save, like, more than half of it. And they were saving sometimes zero, going further and further into debt over the years. Meanwhile, he was going in the other direction saving and investing a considerable chunk of his take-home pay, which was possible because he wasn't buying a ton of stuff. And within about seven or eight years, that was enough to live off forever, just passively off of the, you know, the dividends and income from owning a few shares. 
Those of you familiar with the fire movement are no doubt yelling at the radio by now, but for the uninitiated, Pete is one of many finance writers connected to a lifestyle trend sometimes referred to by the acronym FIRE, Financial Independence, Retire Early. Devotees save up to 70% of their annual earnings and are generally very eager to talk with you about it. Individual mileage varies. But a good rule of thumb is you can retire in about 10 years. If you're willing to live humble and stay super disciplined, the savings add up. And according to Mr. Money Mustache, that doesn't have to mean crazy sacrifices. Just think of it this way. Whatever your spending is, does anybody in your country live on half of your level of spending? And I'm sure that answer is yes. And then is it possible that any of those people are happy having like fulfilling, great, happy lives, maybe even more fulfilling than your life? Well, you know, there's millions of people in every country, so you're damn right there is. The fire movement has definitely received some heat for being cheap. But Mr. Money Mustache explains it's really about clarifying your priorities. Does buying a new widescreen TV really make you happier than if you just played with your kids for all the hours that you spent working to buy the TV? Mustachioism isn't about self-denial, and the lifestyle isn't all that monastic. I like to use the term slightly less ridiculous because it's still ridiculous. Like, mustachians, we all live luxurious lives. We can do air travel. We live in climate-controlled houses. We even have cars. But we're just being slightly less ridiculous than other people. It's not a life spent in recliners either. What early retirement is about is it's not about quitting work. It's about freeing you to do your best work. At the heart of the mustache, there is a message that is as much about ethics as it is about finance. My goal with Mr. Money Mustache is to make it a marketing project to make frugality be an aspirational thing for rich people that's positive on, on the world, the earth, and the ecosystem, as well as your, your wallet. There is a photo. You might have seen it online. That's supposed to be a complete inventory of Gandhi's possessions at the time of his death. Spectacles, two pairs of sandals, a pocket watch, a prayer book, like a dozen or so items laid neatly on a piece of cloth. And you could fit the entire estate into a kindergartner's backpack. People quibble over whether or not he owned a mattress or a desk in addition to the pictured items, whether his iconic spinning wheel was still in his possession at exactly this time. But looking at this photo, the man's commitment to a simple, spare existence is like genuinely breathtaking. In 2013, a pair of Gandhi's sandals sold at auction for just north of $20,000. And the new owner, one presumes, wasn't going to wear them. It was the thrill of owning a piece of history. Humans are an owning animal, in part because we can be. Settled lives allow us to keep more than we can carry. And in part, we acquire our cache of things to compete with one another, maybe for mating rights, other forms of social status, the ever-present tidal pull of advertising pressures us to spend more, to own more, and then to upgrade to the new model. And in the hardest times of our lives, we might keep things because it's just too hard to let them go. Even if they don't make us happy anymore. Even if we have more than we can use. Even as the water rises around us, our fists want to hold tight to the objects that might weigh us to the bottom. Okay, guys. I have got to get some rest before Van call tomorrow. So, for parting thought on stuff and our complicated relationship to it, let's go back to candy. Do you think about stuff and material possessions differently than other people do? 
I do. I pack up some things, put them on a bed close to the front door and alert a few of the neighbors. And the box says, in case of fire. And all they have to do is run in and grab a few things. But every year that box gets smaller because there are fewer things that I think are really that important. Every year I think I would just start over. I don't know that there are things that I really am so attached to that I couldn't go on with life without them. Deeply Human is a BBC World Service and American Public Media co-production with iHeartMedia. It's written and hosted by me, Dessa. Find me online at Dessa on Instagram and Dessa Darling on Twitter. And you can find my cookware on your next holiday wish list. Hey. Every cook's wish. Dessa's deep dish. Dessa, I'm worried about you. Shut up, James. I hate you. Those three words were forbidden in my house when I was a kid. They were just too serious, too mean. On the next Deeply Human, we're investigating hatred, that verboten emotion, its role in culture wars, difficult family dynamics, and the cesspool of social media. And we'll get some hopeful psychological insights, too. Why do we hate? And how can we stop? And if you've been enjoying the podcast so far, take a moment to pen a little review. We read each and every one. Thanks for listening, and I'll meet you back here for the next round.